Um, everybody else, as Todd prayed, will be in Psalm 12. So would you take out your Bible with me and turn there? If you don't have one, there should be one underneath the seat in front of you. Stick your hand in the middle of that book. You'll likely be in Psalms. We'll be in Psalm 12. We are in our final uh, sermon this summer in which we've been looking through the book of Psalms, hitting various uh, ones of them over the last several weeks. Next week, we'll begin a new series of messages together called Jesus on Church. We're going to look at what, in particular, Jesus himself said about a local church. So if you want to read ahead, you can look at Matthew 5, 6, and 7 in the next week or so, and we'll be there next week together. There are 150 psalms, and the 150 come in many different forms. Today, we might call them genres. So there's a, a, a genre of music you probably like more than another, right? Uh, there may be a type of psalm that you like more than another. Many of us uh, believers are drawn to psalms like Psalm 1 or Psalm 19 or Psalm 23 or Psalm 119. But the type of psalm that occurs the most frequently may be one that you're not particularly drawn to. Uh, I would say it's analogous to most of us and country music. We are not drawn to that. The most common type of psalm is what's called a psalm of lament. In fact, a shocking 68 of the 150 psalms are psalms of lament. I doubt this is what you, quote unquote, turn your radio And yet God has given us many. So my hope today is that we would think about something we don't normally think about and that our lives would be changed because of it. A lament is an expression of deep grief and mourning. It's far more than just your typical complaint about a particular day not going the way you wanted it to. Much more intense. Imagine a young mother at a funeral. Her six-month-old has just died. And as the, as the funeral works its way through, she sits right here in the front row, and she wails. And she cries. That's a lament. The Psalms are most frequently denoted by the phrase, how long? How long, God, will you not care? How long, God, will you not be there? How long will you delay your help? Why haven't you intervened? How long, God? Now, the fact that this is the most common type of psalm, and yet it isn't what we're drawn to, many of us, 
And more importantly, it is very much not what American churches are drawn to. That shouldn't be missed. So I want to ask you an important question before we actually look at our text. Why would over a third of the Psalms seem to lie beyond our grasp? Why, why would they be outside of our experience as Christians? There's probably a lot of reasons, but I thought through four this week. Uh, number one, we're taught to hide distressing emotions and to reveal happy ones. And so we tend to think, I can't express that something's hard and I'm brokenhearted and I don't know what to do about it and me and God are not okay. I can only say I'm happy and everything is great. If that's the case, then of course these Psalms, these 68, are not going to be ones that we particularly identify with. A second reason why is that, in general, uh, many of us are selfish. Most of the psalms that are psalms of lament are lamenting the injustices of the world. It's hard to care about the injustices of others if we're only looking at ourselves. Self-absorption produces apathy and indifference towards what's broken, even if it's all around us. Because if I'm going through life like this, it's only what I want and need. Then if you've had a relatively smooth life, what's there to lament? Another reason is that we, in many ways, are worldly. We will not lament the sinfulness of the world if we're caught up in it ourselves. We won't be outraged by evil when we nurture and participate in the same. Are you glad you came today? Maybe a fourth reason is that when difficulties do strike us, it is so incredibly easy to look to false saviors. One of the particular difficulties people face in affluent societies is that we tend to think we can buy our way out of trouble. And so money and pleasure and therapy, video games, vacations, new clothes, Netflix, a different relationship, any of these things can serve as pseudo-saviors. And so even when crisis comes, our tendency is to not cry out to God look to our own resources to resolve whatever difficulties we might be facing. Self-sufficiency doesn't breed a broken-hearted crying out to God. Frankly, before we even read Psalm 12, I think we have reason to lament. Our lack of lament ought to cause lament. to mourn over daily injustice and evil in the world and within our own hearts ought to be typical of Christians because this is what's typical of our Savior. As Jesus walked the earth and interacted with broken people 
and experienced that brokenness in and of himself. He was known as a man of sorrows, a man who lamented. Now, just in case, as you look over your recent days, you don't feel particularly in need of lamentation. Let me give you a few reasons beyond you. Let's take off the blinders and look at the world around us. Last weekend, in the span of a mere 72 hours, 66 people were shot in the city of Chicago. The victims included four teenage girls who were at a meal after a funeral. An old man who was simply standing on the street. An 11-year-old girl. Twelve of the 66 people died. And to date, there's been no arrest for a single one of those shots. Most of that violence was perpetuated by gangs. This isn't third world. This isn't Syria. Chicago. A little closer to home, a psychology professor at ASU Tempe discovered in a recent study that bullying, which is defined as harming a fellow classmate often with words, is more frequent in elementary school than in middle school or high school. So parents, as you send your kindergartner, first grade, second grade, third grade, fourth grade, fifth grade, it is more likely he or she will experience violent words at that age than when we much more commonly think of it. That's a reason to lament. If you've followed the news the last several months, you've watched as uh, the Nicaraguan government has been imploding on itself. 300 people have been killed or arrested. Many of those tortured. Not by some outlandish, powerless mafia by the government. Again, though, let's pull back home. 27 people, 27%, sorry, of people living in Tempe live in poverty. So that means one, two, three, so poor, not sure where the next meal's going to come from. One, two, three, so poor, not sure where the next meal's going to come from. That's upwards of 40,000 people. Nearly half of that number are single women. Most of those, single mothers. 73% of kids in Tempe Elementary School District qualify for free or reduced lunch. Why? Because if they're not at school... They don't know how they'll eat. Over 10,000 kids living in Tempe are living in abject poverty. That's cause to lament. That's ridiculous. 
Take out your phone. Look at any social media post of anything substantial and read the comments. You will find an increasing, incredible hostility. Largely from people who don't know each other. Marriages are often full of venomous speech. Uh, Ladies, statistically speaking, uh, you lie an average of three times a day. What is up with you? Now, guys, hold on. Your number is six. Six times a day, men, we look at other image bearers and lie. This is cause to lament. One more. This evening in Washington, D.C., a white nationalistic, it's a nice way of saying it, a white supremacy rally will happen in this country's capital. It is 2018, and we're still dealing with racial hatred. May we come to see the Psalms of Lament as precious, for there is reason to lament everywhere. And God in His grace and kindness has given us the language of real people as they lamented in order to guide us in our need to lament. Martin Luther, the great reformer, wrote a lot of hymns. He was a man who loved the book of Psalms. Listen to what he said. What is the greatest thing in the Psalter? It's not the stuff you put on your food. Name of the book of Psalms. What's the greatest thing in the Psalter? But this earnest speaking amid the storm winds of every kind. Where do you find deeper, more sorrowful, more pitiful words of sadness than in the Psalms of Lamentation? That they speak these words to God and with God. This, I repeat, is the best thing of all. What a weirdo. Or is he that weird after all? 68 out of 150. Our hope and prayer today, church, is that as we seek to become more Christ-like, we would in particular become more Christ-like in mourning over what grieves God. And may this psalm help us to do so. Cindy, would you come please and read for us from Psalm chapter 12. Save, O Lord, for the godly one is gone, for the faithful have vanished from among the children of man. Everyone utters lies to his neighbor. With flattering lips and a double heart they speak. 
May the Lord cut off all flattering lips, the tongue that makes great boasts. Those who say, with our tongue we will prevail, our lips are with us. Who is master over us? Because the poor are plundered, because the needy groan, I will now arise, says the Lord. I will place him in the safety for which he longs. The words of the Lord are pure words, like silver refined in a furnace on the ground, purified seven times. You, O Lord, will keep them. You will guard us from this generation forever. On every side the wicked prowl. A vileness is exalted among the children of man. Thank you, Cindy. If uh, you're new with us, uh, you can ask somebody around you. Not every week feels like this. But we believe as a church that all of God's word is for our good and is useful. So today, I hope that you'll consider what this psalm would say uh, to you. The psalm breaks nicely down into three movements, and we'll just work through them together. In verses 1 through 4, we find wicked words. Verses 5 through 7, we see God's words. And in verses 7 and 8, we see our words. And so we're just going to talk about words today. Words about words. Wicked words, God's words, and our words. First, uh, wicked words. Notice verse 1, the very first word of verse 1, begins with a single cry. Save! There is no object. There is no subject. It's not a complete sentence. It's just one word. And I imagine as David wrote and prayed, he didn't say, save, like maybe, please, but rather he cried out, save, help, avenge, keep, rescue. King David, the author of this psalm, cried out on behalf of all of God's people as he yelled, asking God to intervene. Friends, whatever you are sorrowful over today, whatever you feel weighty about, and rightly so, Psalm 12 is for you. It is normal to be burdened and brokenhearted and lament things that are not the way they're supposed to be. Now, the question, of course, is save from what? It's clear that David was in some kind of turmoil. And in this case, it was turmoil largely over words. That's the thing he emphasized. This was a man not unaccustomed to other difficulties, even extreme difficulties. He had been in many wars and many times his life was on the line. But this time, in this psalm, he's not talking about physical battle. He's talking about verbal. He's talking about the power of words. David longed to see God deliver his people from the schemes and deceptions of godless people. Everywhere he looked, David saw and heard nothing but wicked speech. 
Notice in verse 2 that this isn't from afar. It's neighbors. I'm not the smartest guy in the book, but neighbor usually means what? Neighbor. They're close. They're next door. You can go knock on their door for a cup of sugar. David is saying those closest have been so full of wicked speech. We don't know the exact circumstances, but he's describing a society in a state of decline, a day when decay marked the speech, a day where hostility and hatred filled the air. Does that sound familiar? Save, save, save is the cry of the godly to be rescued from the ungodly. And it is complete. It is appropriate. It is right. Think for a minute with me about what can only be called the power of propaganda. Persuasive but insincere speech possesses nuclear power. But it's not just the president that has that button. It's each and every one of us. Right? We can do such tremendous damage with our words. And the damage done to us, the hostility that we consume, we consume as much as we do breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Half truth, white lies, manipulation, endless hype is everywhere. And much of this speech at the level of both professional and social media is astonishingly hostile towards Christians. Brothers and sisters, this kind of speech ought not mark us. Yes, it's everywhere, but it ought not be here. Not because we are in any way, shape, or form better, but because we are more in tune with the vileness of our own hearts and have cast ourselves at the mercy of God. Flattery for personal gain, lying to make ourselves appear better than we are, hostility to oppress those with whom we have disagreement, cursing, backbiting, malicious Facebook posts, these are not becoming They're not for the people of God. The scriptures from beginning to end are full of illustrious, powerful teachings about the tongue. Perhaps most famous is James chapter 3, how great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. The tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members meaning the members of our body, staining the whole body, set on fire the entire course of life, set on fire by hell. For every kind of beast and bird and reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind, but no human being can tame the tongue.
It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. By the way, this does not mean your tongue cannot be tamed. It says no human being can tame the tongue. God can. With it, we bless our Lord and Father, and with it, we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing, my brothers. These things ought not to be. Friends, if you have third-degree burns from the flaming words of people close to you, if you've begged them to stop bullying you with their words, if you've sat while others have spewed hatred upon you, if you've fallen prey to the flattery of others only to be burned, guess what? Psalm 12 is for you. Because that's exactly what David, under the inspiration of God, has written and described for us. Now, thankfully, God's words are so different than our words. Look at verse 5, for here is where God speaks. He says, because the poor are plundered, because the needy groan, I will now arise, says the Lord. I will place him in safety for which he longs. The words of the Lord are pure words, like silver refined in a furnace on the ground, purified seven times. Brothers and sisters, neither the pain itself nor the subsequent lament is ever in vain. In other words, every time you cry out to God, Christian, save, save, save. He hears. God is never asleep. God is never indifferent. God is never too busy with people more important than you. God sees, God hears, God knows, and God is not indifferent to his own. The promise of this psalm is that he responds to our cry. He's on the side of the oppressed. We might say that God's for the underdog. God's for the one who recognizes they're powerless. In God's time, in God's ways, he will vindicate his people. God will correct what is unjust. God will be victorious. And even now, brothers and sisters, he can place us in a, such a position that the evil, harmful words of others no longer have the same damaging effect that they once did. He can take out the stinger The promise of this psalm is that God hears us when we say, save. God's words are never false. He's always faithful. And the words of the most powerful enemies of God are as nothing. Now, experientially, does it always feel that way? Of course not. But the enemies of God who speak against God and God's people will not endure. God's words endure. 
That's what Psalm 12 says. Perhaps an example would help. Think about Voltaire. Now, I recognize you've already done that today, but just humor me. Voltaire, the great philosopher, author, and French agnostic, wrote in the 1700s, curse the wretch, referring to Jesus. In 20 years, Christianity will be no more. My single hand will destroy the edifice it took 12 apostles to rear. Sorry, Voltaire. We are still here. Christ, who is victorious, will build his church, and his people will endure. Consider how God's words are described in verse 6. Pure words, like silver refined, purified seven times. This isn't David throwing dice and just picking whatever number came up. Seven in the scriptures stands for, it's analogous to, perfection. And so the point being made is that God's words are pure. They're unmixed. They're perfect. God doesn't speak out of both sides of his mouth. God doesn't tell one person one thing and another person something else just to make them feel good about him. God says, this is how it is. God always says what's right and true and timely. There is no doublespeak with him. Today, of course, our go-to source to hear God's words is God's word. The Bible is God speaking. The Bible is pure. It's like silver refined. It is perfect. Friend, any moment of the day, of any day, for the rest of your life, you can hear God. You need Him say nothing new. You need no fresh, warm fuzzy. You simply need to open His Word and read. For it, in fact, is Him speaking. God's Word promises God's people that God will act for God's glory. And as God acts for His glory... It is for the good of his people. Isn't that good news? We've considered wicked words. We've considered the wonderful state of God's words. What impact does God's words have on our words. Well, the psalm ends by declaring what our words should be. But before we read them, I want to ask you a really critical question. If you miss this question, you will miss the point of this entire message. And more important than that, you will miss the point of lamenting. I want to read it to make sure I get every word. Here's the question. Does God's promise to arise and come to the aid of his oppressed people mean an immediate end to the hateful speech thrown at us? So to say that a different way, David begins with, save! 
And I imagine that's how he did it. And then God said, I will now, 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 not later, not after you do more to to be more worthy of God acting on your behalf, now, I will now arise. And what? And place you in safety. All right, so God Does that mean, does safety mean the one causing the harm, you're going to now turn the tables? And if I'm lamenting over how I've been busted up by the words of others, therefore, if God saves, that means an end today to their speech. Is that what this is saying? Or to put it more directly, middle schoolers, will the mocking at school stop? High schoolers, will the hateful belittling stop? College students, will your teachers not harass you this semester for your faith? Those of you married to non-Christians, if you yell save, then when you go home today, will your unbelieving spouse commend the way you spent your morning? Is that what this lament is for? Is that what God promises? Friends, you've got to ask that question. Interestingly, it seems that David understood this would be the thing we're wondering. And so the psalm ends speaking directly to the question. Just listen to what it says. Verse 7, you O Lord, will keep them. You will guard us from this generation forever. Thank you, God. But don't cut out verse 8. This isn't Hollywood. On every side, the wicked prowl. As vileness is exalted among the children of man. Friends, the tension between verses 7 and 8 is tension. Thank you, Felix. Uh, Sometimes people want to say if you just get your theological system right, then everything will lock in place and be easy. That's not true. There is actual, real tension. There are things that seem contradictory, and yet both are true. There is a tug of war going on between verse 7 and verse 8, and it's actually there. You're not misinterpreting it. You're not misunderstanding it. You're not confused. You don't need to look in the Hebrew or get a different translation. Verse 7 says, on the one hand, God promises to, quote, keep, to, quote, guard his oppressed people forever. Yay! But verse 8, on the other hand, the wicked are on every side. 
God, which one is it? You will preserve, guard, keep, set on safety, or everywhere I turn are wicked people saying harsh, wicked things. Which one is it, God? Yes. It's both. This is the experience of everybody following Jesus until Jesus returns. God will protect, guard, keep as you cry out in lamentation to him, brother or sister. But God will not necessarily remove the one through whom that speech continues to come. Now in the end, yes, but that's not what this psalm is about. This psalm says now God is acting. The tension is real. Though the ungodly may seem to be in control of the world's greatest governments, media empires, school systems, the vast majority of the world's wealth, the church of Jesus Christ is not made up of fools. We serve the one who died and rose again. We know the King of kings and Lord of lords. We know one who, whenever he wants, can simply speak a syllable and end it all. He is on his throne and he's doing just fine. He is executing his plan exactly as he set out to do. And that plan, brother or sister, is as you cry out to him as you've been harmed by the words of others, God will keep and guard you. And if you are not isolating yourself, but rather living in the world, trying to be in light for Christ, you will be surrounded by people who do not understand you and don't have nice things to say to you. These are the twin realities of everyday life. So students, you may be lied to and mocked by classmates tomorrow. But you got to get up and go to school. Husbands and wives, your spouse may never consistently speak to you in a tone that lacks hostility. College students, if your classmates and teachers know that you're for Jesus, then very likely you will be belittled at some point. But look to God's Word. Listen to what God says. What God says is more important. Give the perfect Word of God the credibility it deserves, which is infinitely more valuable than the words of mere people. And understand this. As you lament, church, God will set us in a place of safety, but not necessarily safety outside of being in a battle, but rather the safety of full body armor so that we can continue to engage in the battle and yet not be damaged, affected, maligned in the same way we were prior to the lamentation. 
This is what we're promised. Church, the good word of God will protect the lamenting people of God. from the mortal words of the ungodly. That's sure. But will we cry out to him? And will we lament when our own words are not what they ought to be? That remains to be seen. Let's pray. Father, this is a heavy psalm, and therefore it was a heavy sermon. Thank you that you are not the God of cotton candy, always feeding us something that tastes good but will, in fact, rot us from the inside out. Instead, Lord, you are a God who speaks truth. So we thank you for the truth. I pray this morning for several different people. Lord, I pray for my brothers and sisters in the room who have been harmed by the words of others. Maybe in the long, distant past, but they can still hear those words ringing as though it was yesterday. Father, through your spirit that lives within them now, would you use your word to persuade them that it's worth it to say to you, save. And then, Father, I pray that they would picture you arising from your throne, coming to their aid, lifting them up, setting them in a place of safety where those same words can no longer do the damage that they once did. Because who they are in you is secure. It's final. They are beloved, accepted, adopted, welcomed, saints. Father, I pray for brothers and sisters who this morning are not thinking about the harsh words that they have received, but rather are rightly thinking about the harsh words they've given. Father, we lament when us in the church, when we sin with our speech. God, we have acted in selfishness and anger and pride We have lied. We have maligned your word. We have slashed other people. Father, we lament this and confess it as sin. Father, I pray that those who their minds and hearts are occupied there, that they would now confess themselves And then go the step that must be gone. That they would go to another brother or sister as soon as we're done here. 
and say, I'm sorry. And that they would also go to other brothers or sisters and say, I, I have a hard time with my tongue. Would you please help me? Father, I pray finally for those in the room who are not believers. They don't claim to know you. Father, would you persuade that your word is in fact pure, right, trustworthy. I pray that we begin to open it and read. And that, Father, you would speak and give life. May we be, Father, a people where our speech is so different than the world. Where we give life and joy to each other. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.